0: Here, it is often not really associated with technology. There's this kind of assumption that it's the last realm of human work that is untouched by technology, but that's actually not the case.
1: That was Alexandra Matiscu. She's a researcher with Data and Society. And I'm Bama Athreya, host of The Gig. This season is titled Who Cares? And it's about the future of work for the people in the world's oldest profession domestic, or care work. What is care work? In episode one of this season, we learned that it's all kinds of work in people's homes, behind closed doors, and by workers who are isolated and vulnerable to exploitation. At its most exploitative, care work can be a form of slavery. We've called this episode, Servants to Technology. And we'll be spending time with two technologists, one based in Barcelona and one in New York City. And we'll be focusing on just one kind of care worker, people who provide home health care to people who are elderly, disabled, or in need of chronic care. When you think of gig work, these may not be the people you think about. There's the popular
0: imagination that
1: like the main issue
0: in labor is automation and job loss, that robots are taking away jobs, but really a much more pervasive issue is around quality of work and workers' ability to assert their rights and their dignity as there's an increasing datification and surveillance of workers. We're incredibly frustrated that there was so little attention paid, in particular domestic work, which is predominantly women as opposed to ride-hail companies, which is mostly men.
1: That was Alexandra again. Her organization, Data and Society, is focused on how technology is transforming our lives, including how we work, and also how we experience care. Imagine for a moment that you yourself are in need of chronic care. Say you've had an accident or an illness. After all, it can happen to any of us. Now, Think about who you would turn to and how you would pay for it. And before we turn back to Alexandra, imagine that person being managed by an app. So the work that we did was trying to
0: understand this growing market of platforms, companies like Care.com, which is a major online platform for hiring informal domestic work, and other sort of on-demand apps like Handy and TaskRabbit, where people can hire house cleaning workers on demand. There's a predominantly immigrant workforce. There's a lot of women of color who work in this. A lot of these workers are working under the table. And now there's this sort of other dimension of these digital platforms that might be
1: quantifying their work in certain ways or monitoring them for better or worse. Alexandra shared insights on the gap that needs people to fill it. And she introduced me to a new term, care deserts.
0: The U.S. does not have a very strong care infrastructure. A lot of it is incredibly informal. There's been a lot of studies about the fact that much of the U.S. has what are called child care deserts, which are spaces that just do not have uh, much available child care infrastructure like child care centers, and that people often turn to informal paid child care to fill the gap. But the problem is that wages have, you know, been very low for many care workers. So that's the general
1: setting. Now let's meet our second technologist. Her name is Olivia Blanchard and she's based in Barcelona, Spain.
2: I work as a researcher for the think tank of Digital Future Society. And Digital Future Society is a program of the Mobile World Capital Foundation. So, Spain has, like other southern European countries, for example, Italy, what we call a familiarist welfare system. Traditionally, historically, the the care of the elderly and children and the dependent has fallen on the responsibility of families. And within families, it's wives, daughters, sisters, etc. So, this model of care was challenged in the 1980s, 1990s, with the massive influx. Of women into paid employment. Limited advances that have been made in terms of a more gender equal share of care and domestic work at home and institutional care has proven to be insufficient. Now Spain in 2050 will have, it's predicted to have one of the oldest populations of the world. So we're at the moment we're, we're in what they call the social care crisis.
1: I asked Olivia to describe who does this work and just as we've heard in other interviews, it's migrants.
2: The responsibility of care largely falls on families and, and women in the family nowadays, but a lot of this care is now being externalized, especially to other women who come from, very often from abroad and especially left in America. So women who are leaving their own families in the care of other women back home, and they've come to Spain
1: Both Alexandra, working in the United States, and Olivia, working in Spain, are researching technology, but they realize that to understand what's happening, they need to also understand society, culture, and public policy. Because even the best technology can't fix a systemic failure. Alexandra talked about care deserts. Olivia has described a country's long reliance on women to provide unpaid care labor. I asked them both to explain what happens when platforms come into the picture.
0: A lot of the the people that we spoke to talk about these platforms, like they're dating apps, like you can make a profile and send messages to prospective employers. And these platforms don't, you know, actually do a lot to enforce many of the norms. They don't really check if the job listings on their site are actually pay a legal wage. So we've interviewed a lot of care workers who talked about employers offering bulk pay for like per week, and then it comes out to $4 an hour or something completely illegal.
1: I asked Alexandra what workers said about being managed by apps.
0: One of the challenges of being an independent contractor is that you don't really have a human boss. You have a customer service line. So you basically are treated like a customer. You have to call the line and you have to stay on the phone with them and and you might just get an automated message or something that doesn't really resolve the problem. Care.com, for example, there's, there are rating systems much like Uber and, and Lyft use rating systems, but clients could rate workers, but workers couldn't rate clients. So worker's reputation could be very, you know, significantly damaged if the client gave them a one-star rating because they turned down a job or something. But if there's an abusive employer, there was no way for the workers themselves to give a
1: reciprocal feedback on the platform to be able to protect them. Why would the platform not want to have information about its clients?
0: the case with so many gig economy platforms is that they're generally skewed towards the, the customer and there's been a normalization of workers as being disposable in a, in a way, especially because many of these platforms, there's incredibly high turnover.
1: Platforms treating workers as disposable is nothing new. It's something we talked about quite a lot in season one of The Gig. But this description of reducing relationships to online ratings feels really off when you're talking about someone who's cared for your child all day long. Surely, the platforms should have a bit more nuance to take human feelings and relationships into account. Let's now go back to Olivia in Spain to learn more about why the platforms she has been looking at are a bit different than ride hailing or delivery. It's much more intimate,
2: the job of caring than delivering some shopping or food. Obviously, when you let somebody into your home, you're letting somebody into your intimate space, physical and emotional space. And as a child, as a dependent person or as an elderly, you are in a very vulnerable situation and very often the person looking for the carer, either the parents of the children or they are the children of the elderly who need that care. And if you look at the the communication materials and who the services are are speaking to, really, you can see that they're really speaking to that relative.
1: I asked Olivia to tell me more about the business model. Who runs these companies? Who uses them? And who works for them? Something that called my
2: attention was how often the different platforms on their websites and their marketing materials would emphasize how out of all the people that registered to work with them, that they have a very rigorous selection process and would only take on very small percentages. So this emphasis on we we take on the best of them because they know that they're working in a very sensitive area. They all started as startups and then the founders have a typical startup founder profile, at least in Spain, mid thirties to early forties with a business management background. And when I asked them about why they'd chosen to start uh, a platform in this area, in about half of the cases that we interviewed, they they described that it was from a personal story. So they had, their, their father had become ill with Alzheimer's, sinus, for example, or their mother was in hospital and they needed somebody to care for their relative quite urgently, and they got their phone up, and they quite graphically got their phone out and it was like, isn't there an app for this? This was a question that they oh were asking goodness. themselves.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And, and so that, I found that very interesting. Obviously startups very often start from a personal need, but I, I was curious in that story of how these uh, companies have uh, started. They were all founded between 2015 and 2018. Now that was a time when... Platforms in other sectors were also starting, for example, the delivery app Global, that started in Barcelona around the same time. So we have to think of the context. Barcelona is one of the Europe's startup hubs. Half of the platforms specializing in care that we include in the report were founded in Barcelona. So that's not a coincidence. The ecosystem, the startup tech ecosystem is, is like fertile ground for that. And they more and more used to doing more things on apps, whether that's dating or selling old furniture, or in this case, finding a carer. So I think that's the context that that we also need to think about. And um, as I was saying before, that there's a huge need for care.
1: We could probably manage to live our lives without on-demand delivery services. But over the past several decades, as more and more women have entered the paid workforce worldwide, Our systems for taking care of those who need to stay at home haven't kept pace, and we can't do without those. And now, maybe some of us are doing what Olivia described, pulling out our phones and expecting there to be an app to help when our family members need care. But what kind of system do we expect to be behind those apps? What we haven't done, as they both pointed out, is invest in better care infrastructure. Instead, our countries have pushed healthcare and childcare institutions to keep costs low by underinvesting in their workforces. Spain
2: has a third of Europe's domestic workers, and it's only Italy has a higher volume. Whereas if we look at the volume of people working offering care within institutions, so institutional care, Spain has a much smaller volume of workers compared to for example Germany or France. So that gives you an insight into how relevant home care is. It's a growing sector in Spain. It's very lucrative. And I think we'll see, we're seeing what more and more investment and private investment. I've talked about the Uberization of care. Not all of the platforms operate like Uber. Most of the platforms that we found operate like a traditional placement agency. We found a smaller proportion of the companies that worked under a on-demand business model. And they had chosen to specialize in short-term urgent needs. So for instance, your dad goes into hospital, he needs to stay the night in hospital, you can't stay with him. So you need somebody to stay with him. That sort of need, So very short-term urgent needs. And interestingly, we were told that throughout the pandemic, the, the care homes themselves were making use of these apps that could find somebody very quickly, because if somebody can't come into work, you need to find a replacement and you don't have anyone, then maybe in that case, it was very useful to
1: have this app. I asked Olivia to tell me more about the workers providing on-demand care. So the business models, they're targeting healthcare
2: and social healthcare professionals that have a part-time job, for example, in a hospital, and that want to complete their working hours. That's who
1: they're targeting. They're already employed in the care sector. They're taking on occasional one off gigs for supplemental income. Can you talk a little more about that?
2: One of the on demand model platforms said that their platform is, and I quote, I- an ideal job for nurses, assistant nurses, and dependent care specialists. And I saw when I was looking into the websites, I, s- I remember seeing once an emergency room offering their services in in home care and this speaks to the chronic shortage of good quality work in both the public health and social care sectors in Spain and for me it brings up the question of how much of these platforms are filling a gap because if you have many people working with part-time contracts and short-term contracts, and, uh, and this is very well known in Spain, both in healthcare and in social care, then are these platforms targeting these professionals, a way of filling that gap in the system? So from the perspective of the workers, many are working, they don't have full long-term employment. Their contracts, are they either have short weeks, long weeks. So some weeks they'll work three days, other weeks they'll work four weeks. So there's gaps in their schedule and in their income. And what these apps are saying is, well, if you need some extra cash, if you want some extra cash, this is a way of getting it in and using your skills.
1: Well, that was eye-opening. In episode one, I wondered why supply and demand didn't really seem to apply to the care economy. Now, from what Olivia says, Spain has growing care needs, rising demand, but care workers are underemployed and turning to gigs for extra money. So instead of a permanent workforce of well-trained people who are always there when needed, people will have to hope, the on-demand workforce is available and qualified. Now let's go back to Alexandra. She and her colleagues have just released a new report titled, The Weight of Surveillance and the Fracturing of Care. I asked her to tell us more, and I was particularly interested in whether technology was assisting or undermining publicly supported care in the United States.
0: In the U.S. in 2016, there was a piece of legislation that required all government funded personal care and home health care services to use this digital system, usually in the form of a mobile app that tracked workers clocking in and and clocking out time as well as their physical location. And the mandate was basically explained as necessary to reduce so-called fraud, waste, and abuse in home care by verifying that a home visit has completed. And in theory, this sounds not too controversial, but the fact that this was so hyper-focused on this assumption that people who receive, you know, public benefits are committing widespread fraud already de facto criminalized, both workers and service recipients Mm -hmm. as both workers as a low wage workforce, that's predominantly women of color and also service recipients for being low income, older, disabled, many people of color as well, and the kind of distress that that was embedded in these technologies. The people who designed them, I think had very little understanding of how care is actually provided on the ground, because I, I just can't emphasize how dysfunctional a lot of the dynamics of these systems were not just for example a lot of them required workers to clock in and out only in their client's home but that is an assumption that the client is always at their home that they're homebound and it's particularly ableist to assume that people with disabilities are just at home all the time so it just created this like Kind of ambient criminalization where where both workers and service recipients were just constantly afraid of getting
1: flagged. And just who does that benefit?
0: For one, it definitely benefits the technology companies that are, you know, contracting with state governments to roll out these systems. And this is part of a longer history, particularly in the U.S. of rhetoric around welfare benefits and kind of assumption that if you are poor and you're receiving public benefits, then you need to be, you know, hyper surveilled to make sure that you're not receiving benefits that you shouldn't be. So the companies promised federal and state governments that they would
1: have abundant cost savings as a result of these systems. So the care recipient and the care provider are incidental to that cost benefit analysis.
0: Exactly, and there's this sort of assumption that care can very easily be standardized into like little units of time that reframes care in in terms of time consumption and how much time is being consumed doing the work and what is considered legitimate billable labor by the state. And it also fell on the workers to be able to regiment their time and to be able to actually make these systems work in in order for them to actually get paid. And it's funny because a lot of the rhetoric around these technologies is that they'll improve quality of care, but uh, often the work of being able to make their labor legible to these digital systems ended up taking away the time that. Workers could spend actually providing support services to their clients,
1: and we've just obviously gone through this year that has been really eye-opening for a lot of people in terms of the importance of the care economy. Are we seeing an acceleration to people using platforms for care and domestic work? I think there very likely will be, in large part, because in the
0: U.S., because of the shutdowns, a lot of childcare centers went out of business in the last year. Mm -hmm. And and there there were federal efforts to have relief funds for for a lot of these childcare centers, but a lot of it was too late. So a lot of the formal structures of care have fallen apart. And there's also been a mass deinstitutionalization of nursing homes, in particular, because nursing homes were hotspots, major hotspots for outbreaks Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And during the shutdowns also, a lot of these nursing homes had visitation bans that prevented family members from being able to visit their loved ones. So as a result, a lot of people, have left those institutions and moved back into the home. So there's now, I think, informalization of care that I'm thinking that a lot of these platform companies are going to
1: step up into and see it as a business opportunity. Alexandra described a care system that through the pandemic, instead of getting more investment and attention, got even weaker. I asked her to describe what a better system would look like.
0: First of all, it has to start with the perspective of the workers and the person receiving care or support services. You cannot start with optimizing for efficiency. I do think technology can never really be a true substitute for chronic underfunding of care infrastructure in general. A lot of technology tends to be designed to squeeze effort from workers and then seeing that as a win, oh, you're able to extract more care labor from people and that's how you resolve the gaps in care needs, which may like be a short-term solution, but you're going to burn out your workforce, which we have seen with the just sheer collapse of the care infrastructure during the COVID-19
1: pandemic. The platform sector has done extraordinarily well during the pandemic. But is caring for people really just another gig, another business opportunity? Or should there be something more to ensure that care work is meaningful and, well, humane for both the caregiver and the recipient?
0: A major issue that came out of the disability rights movement that people with disabilities have a right to live in their own communities, but also importantly, that they have a right to autonomy over their lives and that they have a right to kind of have a voice in, in how they receive their own services. A lot of care seems to treat people who receive services as people who are acted upon rather than people with active lives. So I think it has to create a balance between the needs of workers to be able to have good jobs and also be able to respect and support people in thriving as they receive care and support services.
1: Both Olivia and Alexandra described systems that could be providing more options for all of us if we made different decisions about public investment in care. Creating more options. I noticed this in my interviews in season one, too. Technology isn't actually creating new options for us in these sectors. It's just finding ways to tap out existing services. But you can only squeeze so far. What will it take for the private or public sector to actually start innovating and creating new options. And this episode, we've been talking about care in two industrialized countries, the US and Spain. I'm also curious about what automation is going to look like in this sector in the rest of the world. So in the next episode, I'm going to take us to two very different settings, Thailand and India. And we'll talk to researchers there about what the future looks like in their countries and what workers are doing about it. I'm Bama Athrea, and you've been listening to The Gig. My producer is Evan Papp at Empathy Media Lab. You can support us by visiting our page on Anchor FM. That page is anchor.fm backslash the gig dash podcast. You can find our previous episodes there too. The Gig is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. To check out more shows on topics like this one, just visit laborradionetwork.org.